Our sermon passage this morning is from Mark uh, 13. If you would turn in your Bibles, there's also Bibles on your uh, table, uh, chair table, which you will see the amazing versatility of them for lunch when they fold out the tables. Uh, it's on page 551 in those Bibles if you'd like to read on there. So this is one of the passages that, uh, you know, I'd like to preach through books of the Bible because that's how they were written. They were written in little small sections, but sometimes you get to a passage and you just wish it wasn't there because it's hard and complicated. Uh, this chapter is one of those. So we're going to talk uh, more about practical things in this section this morning. And then the next section talks roughly about the same thing, answers this question, but we'll talk more about the historical part that's going on next week so we can separate them. Uh, this is actually Jesus' longest teaching section in the book of Mark. And his teaching audience is his disciples. And then it's even smaller. It's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Uh, and this is really important as we look at this because we see that they trust in Jesus. They understand more and more who he is as Messiah. So he begins to explain some things that are coming. And it, his explanation is prophecy. Uh, only 30% of the Bible is prophecy. Uh, a lot of it has been, when people say, only one-fifth of it has been yet to be fulfilled. really depends on your view of prophecy and what it is. But in this section, it's a section about the temple. And Jesus saying it's going to be destroyed. And then they begin to question Jesus. What does this mean? What does the end of the age mean? So please listen as I read. This is Mark 13. And I'll read uh, verses 1 through 13. It says, And he came out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what, a, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you'll be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his children and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, sort of ends on a very hard, stiff note. Um, But really, as you look back, this passage is that there is conflict, there is war, there will always be war, there will be division in family, there will will be unresolved, there will be people who will die for their faith. Uh, This is the history of the Christian religion. Uh, Never has there been a time where some of these weren't taking place. But as we ask, as we look at this question, we really look at Jesus is going across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem, and he goes to the Mount of Olives, and they're talking about what a wonderful thing the temple is. And it is. We have nothing that compares to it. And they're looking across from the Mount of Olives at this. And Jesus is telling them, this is going to be destroyed. Uh, one uh, writer, Josephus, who's an early, uh, early, very early historian, this is how he described the temple. The whole of the outer works of the temple was in the highest degree worthy of ad- ad- admiration. For it was completely covered with gold plates, plates, which when the sun was shining on them, glittered so dazzlingly that they blinded the eyes of the beholders, not less than when one gazed on the sun's rays themselves. On the other sides, where there was no gold, the blocks of marble were of such a pure white that that to strangers who had never previously seen them, from a distance they looked like a mountain of snow. This was the glorious thing in Jerusalem, not only physically, but to the Jews, it represented an interaction with God himself. This was where God would lead his people. This is where you would take your sacrifices to be cleansed from your sin. This was the center of everything Jewish. The smallest thing we have in comparison as Americans is the White House. And that pales in comparison to this. This was the one thing that a Jew would want to tell you about and want to explain how glorious it is and what it meant to them. This was the pinnacle of anything that's ever been made. So if the temple was to be destroyed, this meant complete change in how they operated. It meant everything was different. And we have a hard time understanding that. We have a hard time understanding things being drastically changed. We like small changes we can adjust to. And then they fit into our lifestyle. We can use them more. If someone was to, uh, from 40 years ago, throw you into the present time and hand you a cell phone, you just wouldn't know what to do with it. It would baffle you. It wouldn't make any sense. So the people, some of the people, as they hear that Jesus is going to destroy the temple, makes no sense to them. It is really the end of everything as they know it. Jesus has continually confronted the Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes about their assumptions of the Messiah. And he's also confronted his disciples, his closest followers, because they can't imagine a suffering servant who will set them free. They want a political king. And to be a political king in Israel would would be 
to reign and rule from Jerusalem and to highlight the temple even more. But Jesus explains that will be destroyed. That whole thing will be gone. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, I tell you, the one greater than the temple is here. And this is Jesus. As great as the temple was, it was only a shadow of the reality of redemption. It was a place that sacrifices took place, but the completion of everything is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all promises. No more sacrifices. This is one reason we see in Scripture that we baptize infants. In the Old Testament, an infant, a male infant, was marked out by circumcision, a bloody rite that included them in the covenant community. Jesus came and through his bloody rite ended all bloody sacrifices. So now we use water to symbolize cleansing. But this was foreign. So the questions that were posed to Jesus from uh, his four disciples were, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This passage is also in uh, Luke and Matthew. So really to understand uh, this passage more fully, uh, we can see those. And we're not going to read through those this morning, but read through those to see um, what is, what is the fuller meaning and understanding of the Olivet Discourse? Matthew clarifies the second question, and he says, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What's so interesting in this is that the disciples and their doubt and their confusion is really changed because they don't question Jesus here. They don't say, no, 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 I don't think you understand, Jesus, how important this temple is. They say, well, explain it to us. We don't understand it. So their faith has grown. As we look more at Jesus' answer this morning, I hope that you see that his answer is not uh, exactly a timeline or how to prepare for this. His answer is really, this is how you are to live your life. And so that's, that's where it really applies to us today. Uh, And we have all heard people write uh, pages and pages about the day that Jesus is going to return. It's very clear in the Bible, if someone tells you that, they're immediately, you know they are wrong. It says no one knows the day or the hour when Christ will return. What's happening here is the destruction of the temple. So Jesus uh, died around 30 A.D., Mark was written about 50, maybe the mid-50s, and the destruction of Jerusalem was in 70 A.D. So this passage was written uh, 15 years or so before the destruction of Jerusalem. So as we look through this, we're going to look about how does Jesus call his disciples to live in this historical context, and then how is he calling us to live? Because from the beginning of time, there's always been wars, and rumors of wars, and destruction, and division, that has always been there. So how will you live in the midst of that? How will you live in the midst of suffering, and of trials, and tribulation, and persecution? That's the bigger question. So in verse 5, Jesus begins to answer these questions. 
It says, and Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. We're called to be a discerning people. We're called to be a wise people. We're not called to be people that look at the newspaper and change our worldview. We're called to be people who understand that God has communicated to us in his word, the Bible. And that we're to seek this and read it to understand it. And the way this understanding is taking place is in community. Uh, We're in great danger if we think we can sit in a room by ourselves and gain wisdom and understanding that no one else in the world has ever had. We gain wisdom and discernment by being in community, by being in conversations with people, by seeing how do we live out what God calls us to in his word. So if you do not have a community that you can speak honestly to and ask real questions to, uh, you will tend to be led astray by many things. So one of the applications here is we're called not to be led astray. So by doing that, we need to continually read the Bible and be in community and ask questions so we can figure out how we are called to live. And throughout, since the time of Jesus, even before that, people have come and said that they are the Messiah. Uh, Jesus is the only one who died and rose again and was witnessed by hundreds of people after his resurrection. And then he ascended to heaven. He has fulfilled his promises. So his first calling of his people is do not be led astray. Verse 7 gives us the next one. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. So here in this, we are told not to be alarmed. We shouldn't be shocked that there are wars. We shouldn't be shocked that there are earthquakes, that this, something is wrong with this physical world that we live in. It should not shock us. But we try so much in our life to protect ourselves from everything that we get shocked when there is a disease, when there is hurt, when there is an unexpected death. This should not shock us. It should call us to mourn and hurt with people. But it should also call us to remember that God is sovereign over everything. And nothing happens by accident. And we can acknowledge that and give each other platitudes, probably. But the reality is, what does that look like in your life? Do you really understand that there is a God beyond your understanding that you could not know anything about him if he did not communicate to you and me in this world through the Bible? We cannot grasp him because he is so other and beyond us. But what does he do? He knows our weakness, he knows our frailty, he knows our lack of faith, and he condescends to us and gives us his word that we can hold on to. 
So we're called not to be alarmed, not to be shocked or surprised that the world is in turmoil. Verse 9 says, uh, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Uh, Here we are called to be on our guard and to bear witness. This is really important because I believe this is something that all of us, if you are a Christian here today and you you understand what we're talking about, this is one of the things that we really struggle with is bearing witness. Uh, Because we like to do, and it goes in the same line of our American idea of we want to be comfortable. So we try to do everything we can to live a comfortable life. Uh, Think about what you, you think about comfort and safety when you buy a car. When you buy a house in the neighborhood you live in, you think about comfort and safety in the food you eat, everything. It continually goes through your mind. Comfort and safety. But do you understand that those things, we're doing this. The mission of God is continually doing this. So how can you bear witness about God's goodness and mercy in the midst of turmoil if you are not interacting with people with ha- that have a different view than you. And this is what we're called to as Christians. We all have a mission. What, no matter what your worldview is, you live for something. And the Bible is very clear that if we trust in Jesus, then our mission is God's mission. He's doing work. And it goes to the next one in verse 10. And the gospel but first be proclaimed to all nations. We are to promote and proclaim the gospel. Uh, this week I was uh, sitting at a coffee shop and, um, well, let's be honest, don't tell anybody. I was going so I could ignore people. Don't tell anyone, though. And, uh, but please talk to me if you see me out <laughs> But, I, you know, those times you just think, I have so much to do, and I know I can sit here, and no one is going to talk to me. So after three conversations with people, I just closed my books, and I left. and thought, I need to go somewhere else. But really, is me thinking, this is what I, I want to schedule my day, because I have all this stuff to do, and then what do I begin to ignore? I begin to ignore God's real mission. Why has he put me here? And so in these conversations, I got to share the gospel with someone, and we had a great conversation about spiritual things. All three of them were about spiritual things. And I leave wrestling with my own flesh and selfishness. But I had to be thankful that in my day, that was God's plan. So when we think about the mission of God and promoting the gospel, what we all tend to do is we put it in a box, and we put it on the shelf, And we can look at it, we can describe the mission of God, and then maybe once a week we'll take it out and we'll say, today's the day. Really, no, will you meet smaller? This is the hour that I'm going to just promote the gospel. I'm just going to love people that are around me. I'm just going to be selfless. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be repentant. I'm going to care for them. And then when we feel like we've done a good job, well, then we just put it back on the shelf. And then we tell people, Yeah, I really did that this week, just like I did, just like I did with my story. But really, understanding the gospel means that 
every moment of every part of your day, no matter where you are, if you're home and alone and you live by yourself, you're talking to your neighbors, you're at your workplace, how are you promoting and proclaiming the gospel? Now, I'm not just saying that you have to give words. I'm saying in your life, the way that you live, what does it look like? And to me, there is so much freedom in that that I can think throughout my day, my calling is to promote and proclaim the work of Christ. But at the core of our not sharing, of the core of our not proclaiming the gospel, is that we don't value it. So your action point or whatever you want to take home as application is not go share the gospel more. I want you to think, why do you not do that? Why do you not value the gospel? What are idols that you begin to create and find significance in that are so much more important to you than Jesus? And what are they? And begin to have conversations with people that you know love you and are gracious to you who, you, who you can share with, I just love my comfort. I'm a people pleaser. I don't want anyone to be offended by me. Or you can just be honest, I just don't like people. <laughs> but as people understanding the gospel, then a part of that understanding, it's understanding God's mission. And so whoever God puts in your day, it's that person that you're called to love and befriend and care for. This really leads us into the next verse five. Verse 11 says, When they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Are you sensitive to the Holy Spirit working in your life? Uh, I believe we are really good as Christian people at shutting down the Holy Spirit. And here's how it usually goes. Someone comes to you and uh, shares a hurt, shares a sin in their life. Okay? They're honest with you with a sin. And then our reaction many times is, you know, I do the same thing. Instead of saying, you know, let's talk more about that. Let me ask some questions. But sometimes we just want to agree that we're just all the same, and then we just leave the Holy Spirit and God's transforming work out of it. Because we really know if we're going to ask people hard questions, if we're going to get to know them and try to love them and be gracious and confront, they're going to do the same thing to us. And so we'd rather just live a life of comfort. That it's much easier. We'll just agree that we're both sinners, and you know what, and we'll pray, which is a great thing, and then we'll just go on. But we don't deal with the sin beneath the sin. We don't deal with the heart motivation that is behind it. And so I encourage you, as you're interacting with people, continually pray as you're talking. And let the Holy Spirit lead you in a conversation with someone. Too many times our view would be like the disciples here when Jesus is talking about this destruction, their view is survival, not mission. And that's 
what we do many times. That's what I do. Some days I just want to survive. I just want to make it to bedtime. And maybe you've w- woken up like that. Through this last two years, I've woken up like that many times. I've woken up, and my first thought is, when can I go back to bed? What time is it that I can get my kids to bed so I can get back in bed? And I forget that God has given me this day, and my day is going to be hard. And your day is going to be hard. But what is God calling you to do in the midst of that day that is not just survival? I think we treat a lot of our relationships this way. We just survive as people in our relationships. Instead of what is God creating, what is God doing in these relationships? So the core of all of this is Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and about his returning. This is this whole chapter. But in this little section, we've just looked at how we are to live. And these principles um, are... We're, applicable to first century people, and they're applicable to us. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. Proclaim the gospel. Trust in the Holy Spirit. These are ways that we're called to live. And these all take place in community. These all take place in relationships with other people who God can use to guide us and move us. So a few things in your life, when you go through turmoil and fearful things, just like Jesus is talking about, what do you do? What do you trust in when you don't understand something? What do you trust in when your life is not what you thought? What do you trust in when uh, you are faced with your own loneliness? What do you trust in when you are in despair, and you think there's no way out. Where do you find your trust? Because you find it somewhere. No matter what your belief system is, you find your significance and your trust somewhere. I encourage you this morning to think about what that is, and I encourage you to trust in the good shepherd, to trust in the one who cares for you, who knows your hurt, who has empathy. John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So this morning, when we go through trials and wars and divisions and hurt and death and disease, what do you trust in? Because there's a promise from God that is in Jesus that says, We trust in Jesus and we are set free. Our sin is forgiven. And we have a union with Christ that is unbreakable even through death. And that's probably one of your worst fears. And so this morning, we trust in our comforter. We trust in our shepherd because he is the one who understands. Let's pray. Lord, you are the good shepherd. You are the one who cares for us, who provides for us. You are the one who does 
all that we need. You are the one who calls us not to work really hard. You are the one who calls us to rest in you. You call us to a life of faith and repentance. We pray that we would understand that more. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. We look forward to the day when our trust is ultimately fulfilled, where we get to see the object of our trust face to face, where fear and shame are no more, where death is no more, where sadness has gone forever. And this song that we're about to sing is just a yearning of the heart to be where God is. Once again, as you're able, let's stand together and sing, I want to be where you are. Those who follow you. 
Well, it turned red. Oh, never mind. Ignore that. <laughs> well, as we're sent out, we're sent out of God's promise and his message to us. So please receive God's word and please join us for lunch. We'll consider our worship service and our time of prayer, uh, us asking for God to bless our food. Uh, at the end of Hebrews, the word of God says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.